0: Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to episode 82 of Talking with Painters. I'm Maria Stolger, and this is the podcast you come to if you want to hear Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I just wanted to do a bit of an end of year best of episode and I've taken a short clip from each artist's interview I did this year and I've put a link in the show notes to the website if you'd like to hear the full interview. I've also taken video of most of those artists in their studios and you can see those videos on the website too. I'm recording this on New Year's Eve in 2019, and those of you outside of Australia might not be aware, but we're currently experiencing an unprecedented bushfire season, which is both severe and deadly. And to those of you affected, I hope you're safe and that this episode takes your mind off whatever you're battling at the moment, even if it is only for half an hour or so. Let's hope for cooler conditions and better still, rain to put an end to this horror season. Before we start, I'd also like to thank the artists who've come onto the show and shared their stories with me, and their gallerists who are so welcoming and who let me film in their galleries on opening nights. But mostly, I'd like to thank you, the listener, wherever you are in the world. You're the reason I do the podcast at all. And thanks for all your interaction on social media, as well as your direct messages. So I'm starting off with episode 64, with the warm and gregarious Luke Scaveris. I traveled out to Hill End, which is west of Sydney, where Luke has his studio. His studio is the most atmospheric, old stone church, and it was the most amazing space. This is a part of the interview where we talk about something most artists struggle with, how to see a painting with fresh eyes.
1: I generally find that if I leave a painting alone for a while, and I normally have to because I've got dozens of things to work on and they take a long time to dry, so I really, really sometimes leave them for weeks or months. Mm. And then pull them out. You think, "Oh wow, what was I thinking?" You're <laughs> far from finished, and you go for it. It's um, ah. fabulous to work on on a, an entirely dry surface yeah. of a painting. That um,
0: when you yeah. say "go for it," what would you do?
1: Oh boy, you can put a make up a big sloppy bucket of coloured glaze and then get a massive brush. And paint like a curtain veil right over half of the picture and then get a scraper and scrape it all off and then etch back into it with the back side of a knife so that you're actually drawing back into a painting. You can do anything.
0: Yeah, it's like you're liberated.
1: Absolutely. It's terrific.
0: Yeah, isn't that funny? It's just a period of time has detached you from it. Yes. In a way.
1: Yes, you see it with totally new eyes. Mm. Even from one day to the next. You walk into the studio and you think, Oh, God, the... Bad angels have been in here overnight <laughs> and really made that painting look terrible <laughs> because you, you can often be too close to a painting to, to know.
0: Oh, definitely. That's you right. Think, you Especially know, you if need... you've spent a lot of time on it yes. and you can't see it afresh. You think, oh
1: my God, what? Yeah.
0: What oh. tricks have you got to deal with that? Have you got any? Do you ever turn them upside down?
1: No, I don't do any of those things. Mm,
0: mirrors, There's nothing mirrors, like that?
1: Mirrors, no, binoculars, backwards, all that stuff. <laughs> Brett Whiteley, Sidney Nolan, they all do that sort of thing. Uh, Fred Williams, stand it on your head. Someone said to me the other day, a painting should look as good upside down. I think bullshit. How ridiculous. <laughs> it's a pa- you resolve a painting with every bit of exacting scrutiny that your eye has honed for your entire life. And if you turn it upside down, it doesn't work at all. (laughs) It looks stupid. It looks like an upside down painting. And if people present to me an upside down painting and say that that's the way it's meant to be, I immediately almost get whiplash trying to twist my head upside down (laughs) to look at it the right way up. I don't get it. That's okay. Everyone's different.
0: I then interviewed Nicholas Harding in his studio in Sydney. He was in the middle of one of his astonishing landscapes, which plunge you into the Australian bush. And although he's very well known for his landscapes, he's equally famous for his portraits. He's won the Archibald Prize, of course. And in our conversation, we got onto the subject of painting women. And I asked him whether he felt there was more pressure to flatter a woman when painting their portrait.
2: There's definitely that that sense of um, of that coming into it yes, definitely and I don't, don't know why that is maybe that's a, a male gaze hang-up I don't know It <laughs> certainly didn't didn't bother people like Picasso. Or, <laughs> You know, uh,
0: well, I suppose you also want to please the person in a way.
2: Sometimes, yep, yep. Sometimes you do. Yes, you do. Certainly, there is that um, which is a, which is a reverse vanity. You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, just, that's it's true. Just a work vanity working back the other way. So that's that's a bit of a tell. Yeah, it a it's so yourself. difficult.
0: I think portraiture is sort of fraught. Oh, with it's, film.
2: it's a, it's a, it's a. Minefield. Especially
0: yeah. when they end up in the Archibald. I mean, you've had so many in the Archibald yeah. and they're so public. Yes. You know you know that everyone's going to see them. And I
2: look back at some of them and I've destroyed a few. And, and, really? And um, some of them, others, I've looked back and gone, oh, that's a, not many, but there are some, it's just, oh, it's just...
0: Really? You feel like that oh, about just, some of your past work. Yeah, I
2: mean, you've got yeah. basically, well, I was using the Archibald to grow up in public um, because, <laughs> one, it gives you a great audience. You know, more people go to see that show than you'd get. Nothing close to that for a solo exhibition. Nothing close to it. No, that's right. And the other thing is, you get you to see your work up um, as some kind of measurement against your peers, Mm. um, which can be, which can work out well when, when you sort of win a a people's choice or or the big one, and on other occasions as well. But it's often the failures that, that teach you more in the sense that when you've done a real, well, that not as good as I thought it was when it was back in the studio, and you measure it against a really good one by, you know, a mate of yours or something, mm. and you go, wow, okay, so what's going on here? So that, that's a dialogue between two painters going on there, and you can learn from that. Yeah. You know?
0: In March, I went up to Lake Catai near Port Macquarie in northern New South Wales to interview Kiata Mason, where she not only paints, but also is the full-time carer of her grandmother who lives with Alzheimer's. Cowder is probably best known for her sensational still-life paintings and her home is filled with interesting and beautiful objects which provide inspirations for her works. We we started talking about her childhood and she mentioned that she moved home a few times, which meant attending different schools, which had very different styles. What was Steiner School like?
3: Oh, well, you went from having to wear, you know... um like crazy amounts of uniform where you couldn't take your gloves off unless you were giving money to the bus person <laughs> and you had to get a note to go out in your school uniform after school with your mother um, to a place that you went and you, you know, took off your shoes and put on slippers and started the day dancing. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't get a more of a cultural <laughs> Was what? change. You must have loved that. I mean, I think the Steiner School was far more like our home life, whereas PLC had always been like this strange, rigid thing that I couldn't really conceive as to why I'd been sent there. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't really understand that. But um,
0: <laughs> So what was art like at the Steiner School?
3: Oh, well... Or was it all art? It was all art in one way or another, but not really. So you did everything by drawing things and listening to stories and then making things and dancing, it seemed. I don't know what else we did. (laughs) So there wasn't much maths? (laughs) I'm sure there was. Um, I vaguely recall that we were being told about, like, the history of maths in a story and there were monks in the story. I don't really... It's a nice what, way to learn, isn't it? Well, it's different. Yeah. I'm yeah. not sure I learnt anything. But <laughs> it so was an enjoyable time. Yeah. But Did, then I went here and I spent the first, actually, that was the first year of high school. Okay. And so that, that was, was a like, true cultural shock. Because right. then I'm, you know, in Port Macquarie mm. and suddenly, you know, you're surrounded by surfy culture. Mm. And, you know, really, whether you have a tan or not is, is the most important thing.
0: <laughs> My next guest was Del Catherine Barton, and of course, she's a two-time Archibald winner. And we met in a wonderful creative space in Sydney's east. This part of the interview starts off where we talk about her time studying art at COFA at the University of New South Wales.
4: I feel like there's just so many contradictions and inconsistencies I suppose for all of us but because on one level I I wasn't a very functional person but in other ways I've I've always been very single-minded and resourceful and like when I'm on a mission I'm on a mission, mm. like and uh, very unwavering in that, and very idealistic and passionate. And I get energy from committing to that.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so your experience at Kofa, um, which is the University of New South Wales yes. in Sydney, uh, did you find that you you committed a hundred percent to that degree?
4: Oh, and some to the oh, point. Yeah. Um, and. I don't know if she'll ever hear this, but, and I don't know if she'll, and I won't mention any names, but one of my main lecturers in third year, because all I wanted to do 24-7 was just make art. Like, oh, really? Is, I got in trouble for being in there too much in the holidays. Like She actually said to me, she said, Del, you need to go out and basically get a life. Like. <laughs> oh, So what was your life like then? Was it? Did you have much of a social group? What did you Not do? Not so much. Um... I mean, I love people uh, as much as I love my practice. I do love people, but I don't need that many relationships in my life, mm. which means that the relationships in my life can burn very brightly and then be very, very heartbreaking when, you know, they change form or collapse mm. um, because I, I am very all or nothing. Like I have a lot of love to give, so you know, <laughs> look out, you poor bastard.
0: <laughs> um, oh, so, er, so relationships were intense. I, I do. You know, yeah, I, I'm yeah.
4: a, I, I can't have too many people in my mm. life. I, it's because when I do invest in someone, I, I friendships, partners, um, family. Um, I, I, I just have to go deep. I'm not. I get very anxious if exchanges stay too much on on the surface. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I suppose that takes
0: time and energy. Yeah, and energy. Yeah. And if you've got a full-on practice, you just yeah. don't
4: have that much to share around. Yeah. And my practice um and bless, I have such a robust um healthy relationship, but my husband fully celebrates and accepts that my practice is my primary relationship.
0: When I interviewed Black Douglas in April, it was just before he was announced as a finalist in both the Archibald and Wynne Prizes at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And he'd go on after that to win the Kilgour Prize at the Art Gallery of Newcastle. So you could say he's had a good year. Black's father's ancestors are the Dungati people from northern New South Wales. And in this part of the interview, he told me why his education at the University of Western Sydney was so important to his career.
5: But the most important thing about my involvement in university was the Deerale Aboriginal Unit, because that's where I met Aunty Jean South, who would become my ultimate mentor. She was an artist herself outside of university, but she was there... To mentor us Aboriginal students who were there, ah, right. who we found the walls of an institution a bit scary, mm. um, and sh- thank goodness that was 1994. Yeah. So thankfully, then our universities were um, an egalitarian thinking place, and that that was incredibly. Chalk and cheese from it compared to what was outside the university grounds. It was a, yeah. you know, footy playing, thuggery kind of demographic. But go in there and you get treated like a respectable individual.
6: Yeah.
5: And you can have a, a, um, a sensible conversation.
3: Mm.
5: And she's, um, she was the one that suggested, well, you know, you're at a fork in the road with your... Um, identity and you need to think about which way you want to go and um, that's what the question that's often been raised why, why did you choose to go that way uh, it's because that all the spirits were standing at that side of the road saying uh, let's go we have going to mm. talk about some things
0: and so that started you on your road to find out more about your roots I mm. take it and how did you go about that?
5: Um, well, first started asking Dad questions, but Dad was such a quiet bloke. He was that archetypal man of few words. But when he did say words, um, and he only trickled them out, and he would only trickle out information about the Aboriginal family, um, pretty much on Christmas time, uh-huh. when yeah. might have had a few beers and. Emotion stirred because it was fucking nostalgic Christmas time. <laughs> and um,
0: It's so hard to talk about some things with family. Yeah. It's really hard to get the right time yeah. and open it, to open up.
5: That's it. Dad passed on four years ago now. And um, even uh, until his final days, you know, that, that final year, he was still just, just eye-dropping out information, Yeah. you know?
0: Do you think as it was painful for him or...?
5: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, the, and this is the problem with uh, so many mobbing community. It's not a problem. It's just that when you've had bugger all your whole life and, but what you do have is cultural knowledge or memories of your family and the old ways... Then, um, you know, you keep that to yourself, because um who deserves to run off with that
0: It's like too sacred in a way, yeah,
5: yeah.
0: Neil Fraser was my next guest, and he paints stunning landscapes. His most recent work depicts crashing waves onto dramatic rock formations, but it's always countered with flat, still spaces which create his distinctive style. I got the feeling his practice was intense, and like all of us, it needs to be balanced with other things in our lives. For Fraser, practicing and teaching karate provides a lot of that balance, and here's what he told me about it.
7: The the karate is a balance for me because, uh, you know, as as a painter, I spend a heck of a lot of time in my own head, Mm. uh, which is not always a great place to be. Uh, And then for part of the day, uh, I do the karate, and I can't think about art too much. I've got to think about, uh, you know, uh, doing the movements as well as I can. So Mm. it's kind of meditative for me. It's physical. Is that a
4: morning thing you would do? No,
7: no, I do. I usually do it in the afternoon at about... 3.30 3.30 or 4 o'clock I do, oh. I do it then. So I've done most of my painting and it's just kind of a, a, an escape.
0: So um, is that a, so karate is a very energetic sort of um, Yeah, it is, of... but
7: it's sort of also requiring a yeah. thought, uh, you know, and memory and uh I, I, like I said, I, f- I find, you know, like most painters, I have that sort of thing happening in my head. There's a lot of lot of inner dialogue going on, and it really shuts up when I do do the uh, karate. And I, I mean, I do a certain amount of cardio as well. I'll go for uh, I run on the treadmill across the road at the gym, and again, that's really good for my brain. I find, you know, that's that's something that really helps me. Mm. Uh, not 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 take things as seriously, you know, not uh, wake up in the night so much and think about it. If, if I'm balancing it out to do that, and, yeah. and the karate, you know, it's just a different thing. Mm. Uh, it's it's something that I've done for so long now, uh, mm. and I did it in America. That's where my hombu or the the the, the head of my style, is is based in Florida of, pla- of all places. Mm. When I when I went to New York the first time, I was studying in. Karate in New Jersey. I used to go and do karate in New Jersey and it was in a funeral home. And they'd these big American guys and they'd push back all the coffins and would do karate in the funeral home. Oh. It was just the strangest thing, you know, it was just just weird. And uh, after the workout they'd bring out all these beers and we'd kind of it's just strange, very postmodern.
0: My next interview was with Tony Costa, who was this year's Archibald winner and has been painting for over 50 years. What was interesting about his painting technique was that he painted almost exclusively with his hands. No brushes or palette knives, just gloves. Here he tells me about some advice he got from the late and famous Australian artist Lloyd Rees.
8: Well, a very long time ago, and I can't tell you when it was, I was at an exhibition and Lloyd... Uh, Reese came up to me and he said Tony I want to show you something I was intrigued because he took his index finger and pointed to a very small area of a painting I can't remember whose painting it was and if I did I wouldn't tell you anyway (laughs) you might be listening and and Lloyd said "Um, you see that area there Tony and it was only you know the size of a 50 cent coin he said that's worried paint you never want to look worried and I looked at him and I said why do you say that Lloyd I couldn't understand what he could see he said well have a look at the rest of the painting it's fluid it's flowing the artist is enjoying himself he got to this area of the face or whatever it was a particular and he's panicked he's he's repainted this many times and the painting isn't flowing anymore and there's a real struggle going on and that ruins the painting for me I thought wow
0: well I think with most paintings I mean there's going to be a bit that bothers you, don't you think?
8: Well, hopefully none. <laughs> none <laughs> of the bit. I mean, entire paintings bother me because, I mean, if there is a bit that bothers you, you can get rid of that bit yeah. and turn it into a bit that doesn't bother you anymore. Because yeah, people say, well, when do you know when a painting's finished? It's when it stops irritating you. If there is something about the painting, sometimes you can't see it immediately, which is why I like going back the next day and having a good look and think, what is it about the painting that troubles me? Is there an area mm. of the painting that I think... I've overworked or understated or overstated or is there a mark in the picture which is far too aggressive or too dominant, which then means that your eye always goes back to that dominant spot.
6: Yes. You don't want any
8: one area of the painting to be dominating. You want the eye to travel over the whole.
0: My next guest was Nicole Kelly and I interviewed her in her studio in Sydney's southern suburbs. Her studio is in an idyllic setting with the treetops of the Australian bush setting the scene outside the glass doors and the sound of birds keeping her company. She's full of energy and vitality and her works reflect that. This is a clip from early in the interview where she talks about her experience in applying to get into the National Art School.
9: I worked on drawing um, before I did my interview for NASS because you, you have to do a drawing test, which oh, terrified okay. me. Yeah. I walked <laughs> out of that ball in my eyes out, like, absolutely <laughs> sure I wasn't getting into National Art School. <laughs> well, what did um, they get to you? Still life? Still A huge still life. Um, right. And you kind of – it's very intimidating. And you go in and I was all – didn't know anyone and my dad took me and I made a horrendous drawing. And in the interview <laughs> they said to me um, – so, you do know you have to pass drawing to get through National Art School. <laughs> I was like, yes, I'll practice really, really hard, I promise. And I think that's probably the only reason I got in, because I was just desperate to get in. And I think I kind of – it was certainly not on skill. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the photography, I think yeah. my, my portfolio was good. Oh, my but, um, God, I cannot believe yeah. that you weren't, hadn't done drawing really much before no. National Art School. But as soon as I got in there, I was obsessed, like something yeah. kind of, um, especially with the drawing, um, very obsessively. Like every, I'd spend all day at art school, come home, spend all night drawing, copying masters, doing mm. and going to life drawing, like probably four times a week. I was totally obsessed.
0: I then travelled down to the southern highlands of New South Wales to meet up with Tim Storia. He's one of Australia's most famous artists. I found it a very interesting conversation talking about his childhood and uh, friendship with Brett Whiteley, and it rolled along until we got onto the topic of art prizes. Talking about portrait prizes and prizes in general, um, even though portraiture is quite a minor part of your Uh, life's work Mm. you've won you know the two major Australian portrait prizes plus the Packing Rim Prize for your portrait of Barry Humphreys are you a bit surprised at that?
10: Yeah I suppose I am Um, 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 although I'd have to say at my age whether you win it or lose it doesn't mean much you know it means an enormous amount to young painters but not at my stage of the career and I've won these things really
0: yeah. Do, is being a finalist important to
10: you? No, not at all.
0: Do, what about the win prize? Because I know you've been finalist in that, I think, three times. Oh, apparently.
10: they call it finalist. You mean they hung it? <laughs> yeah, they hung it. Should have won it. But then every artist says that. So the
0: Arcadian Repose you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. It. No, it's great. That's a great... Mm-hmm. We talk about it on the video, so hopefully mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, you can people can have a look at that on the video. But... Um, well, can we let's talk about? Um, can we talk about commercial stuff, the commercial success or not? Do you, well, want you
10: not, if you want to? Do you not want to though? I think it's vulgar. Okay. They they don't ask.
0: Um, Only because I watched this YouTube video, mm. Damien Hurst talking about how.
10: But that's real money.
0: Yeah, I know. I know it's a different kettle of fish, but. Anyway, no, let's not talk about it. It's it is. It's not worth talking about. Um, so I wanted to talk. I, I wanted to. I'm talk happy to, to you talk about,
10: about it if you want to. They always do it. Do
0: they? Do people talk about with you? Mm. Well, maybe we will talk about that aspect of it. Will I raise. Well, it when I start it? That people will ask you about that.
10: Well, uh, they, to the uninformed, they're always curious, I suppose. But the first question is um, usually. Um, um you know, landscape. You landscape a portrait artist. Yeah. You know that stuff and so yeah. forth. But <laughs> anybody that come there say they'll look at a picture and um they say how much you how much do you charge for that? Uh, yeah. And you say, Well, my dealer handles that they say, Oh yeah. They say, well, how many do you do a year? Yeah. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I wasn't looking at thinking of that aspect. I was thinking of the aspect because Damien Hurst was saying, uh, because obviously he's very wealthy, but that the money, money's very complex and that it's like he was saying it's sort of like love, like it's very complicated because it should be able to enable you to do your work, not be the motivating factor for your work.
10: What, he's gone into the priesthood now, has he?
0: (laughs) I then travelled out to Hill End again to see Susan Baird in her studio. Susan's recent works were essentially created on plein air around her home there and I felt her love of that landscape come through in those works. Here we talk about childhood memories and how one's childhood can lead to an artistic life.
6: Everything in her house was just magnificent, simple, but every single little item she would have saved up for and handpicked, and yeah, so that's right. That's what I love so much about. Well, my mum's home and also my nan's home, I think, was just that having that sort of sense of, um, I guess, stability, security, just knowing it's always going to be there, and mm. Mm. yeah. A real home. Yeah. You know, people's childhoods are so complex and, you know, often fraught as well and, you know, even though you might have, like, a really close relationship with your parents, you might not think that they understand you particularly well and, you know, all of that. Yeah, even though yeah, you have a really yeah, close yeah. relationship with yeah. them. And reasons for doing things and mm. like this might might go you know you may not use this but I'm just sort of being honest with you in explaining what I think it's about you know depending on your family situation like there's so many different ways right you've either got your family you've been you've grown up around other painters or you've seen art or you've been exposed to art or your parents loved art and they took to you lots of galleries and all of that 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 wasn't my thing at all even though mum did love painting like she did love beautiful things and she did love art but it, that really wasn't um, it's more um, kind of a way of a, to escape like an escapism mm. and so i used to escape into my piano a lot into music Mm. And I used to like look out the window of my bedroom all the time and just think wonder what was going to happen in the future. like not what was going to happen in the future, but like it's like you're constantly looking and thinking and waiting and thinking something I don't know, like observing mm. and going into yourself.
0: Tom Carment was a finalist in the Archibald Wynne and Sulman Prizes this year, so if you went to the exhibition at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, you had a high probability of noticing his work. Tom's also a writer and his book, Woomera Lane Lives and Landscapes, was published this year. In this part of the interview, we talk about his memories of going to Sydney University's Fisher Library, even though he wasn't a student there.
11: I feel like I got my fine arts education partly in Fisher Library stack. I lived in Glebe for quite a while and at I I, that period of my life, I was living by myself, I'd have dinner, walk up to Fisher Library and read in the stack until it closed. I think they used to close quite late at night then. Yeah, at right. 7, eleven at 10 or 11 o'clock at night and I'd just go through looking at the art books and working out what I liked and reading them in, in the stack. So.
0: What do you, can you remember what, what ones you were really
11: drawn to? I remember one in particular actually you turned the corner to go into the fine arts section there was a book called gout and goutiness on the corner i always used to think "Wow, well, that's great that's where i turn left um but um, they had a great section on the german romantics in that mm. library really fantastic books and the real discovery for me was Caspar david friedrich mm. the german romantic painter who i really love and they had about 15 books on friedrich but now they've all been shipped out to a storage facility from and Fisher Library has evolved into something else which I find a little bit depressing mm. because um, I believe in the value of browsing. Mm. I went to Fisher Library as a young man not knowing really what I wanted and it was only by browsing through all the art books I found what I wanted. So now you've got to go to you know, a, a computer monitor and log in to you know, discover what you want and then you, you know, might arrive five days later from the storage facility. Mm.
0: My next guest was Catherine Longhurst. She was born behind the Berlin Wall in East Germany. The communist propaganda art which she'd see in the streets found its way into some of her paintings, but with a twist, depicting strong, empowered women. And more recently, her large portraits of female refugees and immigrants have been impressing viewers across the country. I spent quite a bit of time asking about life behind the Iron Curtain because I personally found it so interesting, and here's part of what she had to say about that.
12: That's the thing with a police state, with a complete surveillance state, is that, uh, you know, that you have no freedom. Like every every step you take is being recorded because they're, they're... they really wanted to control the lives of their people so that mm. they wouldn't rebel against the system. Well, you would have been quite young, were you? Always? Yeah, so so mm. what, what I'm saying is, like, that uh, we as children, we're not aware of any of this, mm. and I think mm. mum always tried to protect us um, in that sense that the, the less she would tell us, the, the better for us because we couldn't accidentally say something wrong and endanger yeah. us or... Uh, get us into trouble but um so you were aware of a whole world out there yeah but it was a very skewed world i mean we the snippets of the west we we would get was from you know american television so i thought Mm. you know the west would be something like dynasty or (laughs) you know (laughs) dallas or was that appealing or was that sort of considered decadent
0: I mean I'm I'll say if dynasty or deltas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that is a bit of a weird world to live in. J.R. Ewing.
12: <laughs> no, of course it was appealing like we um, we were desperate to to find out what the west was like and just access to products and and fashion and especially yeah. as a young teenager you know wanting Uh, cosmetics and and beautiful clothes and Mm -hmm. that's all you live for.
0: Ben Quilty was the last artist I interviewed this year and the survey show simply called Quilty is now showing at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. He's an acclaimed painter, he's won the Archibald and Doug Moran, but also spends a lot of his energy observing and commenting on important social and political issues, which can be a bit of a minefield and can leave you open to aggressive responses. We talk about those issues in this clip. I think you said about this show that it's something that it's, you want to sort of bring compassion and empathy to the forefront of the nation's... Um, debate.
13: Yeah, I did say that. I can't believe it. It's well, quite I'm, how that? it's no, yeah. Because i up myself as that. That's not up yourself. No, because I was called a bleeding heart by a very right-wing commentator, and it was a really aggressive threat. You know, it was a put-down that I'm a bleeding heart. I thought, really, am I a bleeding heart? The same man called me an Australian a few years before for holding a vigil for my, my oh, mate, Myron. He said that's un-Australian that it would happen in in um, in the middle of Sydney, mm-hmm. and I I just thought, well, if that's the truth, do I own that? Am I a bleeding heart? Is that a negative connotation? Am I? Is that bad? No, fuck that. That's exactly who I am, and I'm not I'm not changing who I am to suit really extremists. Mm. Those people are extremists. I'm not an extremist. I practice being middle of the road. I practice trying to like people from both extremes of politics. I think that's an interesting sport in 2019 to understand people who are, have diametrically different view to you. Mm. And generally, you find that you'll, you'll come to an agreement and you'll possibly like each other.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah this polarisation, um, especially on social media and everything, yeah. yeah. As you say, the extremists on both sides, it's just, um, it's so difficult to have a civil debate about
13: anything, yeah. you know?
0: It just escalates. Which
13: is very dangerous. Yeah. Debate well, is what will save us. Yeah, exactly. Coming to a common agreement, coming to an understanding, coming to compassion for each other. Yeah. If we don't have that, we're in deep trouble. We're at war with each other, let alone the enemy.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, it'd be great if you could go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Um, That's the way that um, most podcasts get known uh, out there. And um, I hope you can join me for all the interviews I've got lined up for next year. Until then, keep safe and well.